Welcome to the Healthy Insider Podcast, where we help supplement and functional food brands create better products. Today's host is Todd Runstead, Senior Editor. Hello, good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Todd Runstead, Senior Editor at Natural Products Insider. And welcome to another edition of the Healthy Insider Podcast. We are here today. I am speaking with Duffy Mackay, N.D. Duffy is the Senior Vice President of Scientific and Regulatory Affairs for CV Sciences. This is a pioneering uh, hemp CBD company, um, most well known for their Plus CBD oil, uh, a, a real uh, early mover and shaker and leader in the space. Uh, Duffy himself, he brings more than 20 years experience to CV Sciences in uh, nutrition research, dietary supplements, health sciences, and regulatory affairs. Regulatory affairs, this is notable because Duffy will be leading a discussion with many of the hemp CBD industry's leading legal minds in a webinar, uh, Legal, Regulatory, and Market Forces Shaping the Hemp CBD Industry. And this is going to be from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 to 12 Pacific on Thursday, July 2nd. So coming right up. Um, again, so it's Thursday, July 2nd, 2 to 3 Eastern. And so to register to get on that, go to naturalproductsinsider.com. Atop the home page on that little bar, you'll click on Media Assets, then Webinars, and scroll down until you see the title and register. And that title, once again, is Legal, Regulatory, and Market Forces Shaping the Hemp CBD Industry. So um, that'll be great. And so this is here. We're just going to wet your whistle. Um, we're going to talk about some things that Duffy will bring up during that talk, but other things as well. Um, you know, Duffy, I've known you for a long time, and you've joined CV Sciences. You were at the, for more than 10 years, I think, uh, at the Council for Responsible Nutrition, CRN. And with the very same title, Senior Vice President of Scientific and Re Regulatory Affairs. So you um, you brought yourself and you brought your title. <laughs> um, CRN represents dietary supplement, functional food manufacturers, and ingredient suppliers. And their mission was to, is to sustain and enhance a climate for its members to responsibly, the responsible industry, responsibly develop, manufacture, and market supplements, functional foods, and, and uh, nutritional ingredients. So... I, first, I just want to dig in a little on your CRN tenure, um, in particular as it relates to taking your kind of ivory tower role there and applying it to a real company. So and I, I guess I should also point out that prior to CRN, you were also a research advisor to Nordic Naturals, which is the leading omega-3 fish oil brand in the U.S., um, just as a way of pointing out that you've played both sides with you know, businesses and, and organizations. I, I guess maybe you need to fill out your career resume by walking through the revolving door and becoming a regulator with the FDA. What do you think about that? <laughs> you know, it's crossed my mind before. Um, you know, I, I've gotten to know some of the staff uh, at FDA, specifically in the Center for Food Safety. And they're good people, scientists like myself. And um, having the experience, you know, we've seen Kara Welsh go into the agency and do a tremendous job with perspective uh, on some of the nuanced issues as it relates to our product and category. You know, the it's sort of a, a bad word, the revolving door, you know, between regulators and the regulated industry. 
it um it, it, it it's strange to me because you know uh dan fabrican who runs the npa he he went back and forth and he was kind of pilloried in the press uh for being part of that revolving door but it seemed to me if anything he took a pretty aggressive approach to hold the supplements industry accountable it was sort of the opposite approach of what you normally see um you know in the sort of unethical revolving door practice so so i guess it can be done right yeah i mean todd you you know as well as i is is um you you know most of us aspire to maintain a day job and you know first and foremost for example i'm a scientist and a naturopathic physician and uh, have a certain set of training and values that align with that but that could be applied to any number of professions and so you know and, and you would hope that as people change roles from from one um side of the equation to the other they would maintain integrity because um, i think one of the things that i i learned in working in washington dc is that you know agencies like the fda and the ftc the federal trade commission the food drug administration as well as national toxicology program um, they have such shared values and goals with industry you know you know First and foremost, putting the consumer first and making sure the products that are made are, are safe, but also th that they're accessible. You know, part of FDA's role is maintaining that balance between access and safety. And when you get to know the individuals who are given that responsibility, which is a tremendous responsibility, <clears throat> as well as you you hear some of the stories of the bad actors that make their job hard you begin to embrace uh the importance of their role and and um and wanting good uh strong enforcement and so you know i think it's naive i think you know one of the things that our our industry is guilty is being overly emotional about a lot of different things and the fact that someone might work for a regulator and then also work for the industry you know i i think if you look at it on the surface it's 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 a very you know factual it's what they do in those roles that would be um more important yeah that's a really good point Let, let's talk a little bit more about this sort of regulatory role because when you were at CRN, I remember you you provided a lot of scientific expertise in nutrition. That was what I really appreciated about your work. Um, but you also evaluated proposed government and industry actions, uh, and you really established working relationships with regulators um, through engagement on supplements and regulatory matters, functional foods and stuff. You also educated regulators as well as legislators, attorneys general regarding the industry self-regulation and compliance initiatives. Now, this sounds a lot like needs that like what needs to happen with the hemp business. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely. That is a, a big driver that drew me into playing a role in this industry. Uh, the tail end of my career at CRN, the topic of hemp and CBD continued to be raised and it went from you know, I watched it evolve from an obscure topic where, you know, it was brought up occasionally at meetings, uh, often uh, some snickers and jokes, and, and most people not taking it seriously. Um, and I knew just from decades in this industry that this really represented the perfect storm. I mean, the, the, the notion that you could have the cannabis plant make a comeback 
And not only the cannabis plant make a comeback, but in a mainstream way with a non-intoxicating product that, that makes people feel well and, and, and do their best, um, manage stress, you know, help, help um, get a restful night's sleep. I mean, these are things that as I saw the information that was brewing and the possibility that the farm bill um, was going to pass, it became this perfect storm of, of regulatory policy, legal um, mishmash. I mean, you had everything from every agency under the sun being involved, from the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, the United States Department of Agriculture, the Food Drug Administration, the Federal Trade Commission. I mean, every single, but the, the, the U.S. Border Patrol, the Postal Service, everybody was impacted by the, the legalization of hemp. And um, at that point, with my my areas that I've been working with, with food policy, botanical policy, you know, I had just started participating in the Botanical Safety Consortium, which is a public-private partnership between FDA and the industry to really try to unravel a better way to assess the safety of very complicated plants. You know, um, traditional toxicology measures that are used by organizations like the National Toxicology Program are not fit for purpose when uh, evaluating complex botanical matrix like things like ginkgo extract uh, and the government recognizes this so they they've teamed up with um experts in both academics and the industry and they're really trying to figure out how we can use some of the newer technologies to look at the safety of these complicated plants because we know that humans have co-evolved consuming botanicals and plants and curcumin and spices um, and when you use the drug-like science to evaluate the safety of these things, you get erroneous signals, uh, which is a waste of time and money. And often lots of animals are harmed in the process. So really looking at innovative new science ways through the Botanical Safety Consortium. And I knew that all of this needed to be applied to the hemp and CBD space. I knew the potheads were not going to be able to do it, Todd. You know, that I saw the early phases of the hemp CBD. You know, it was all the gondrepreneurs and lots of Bob Marley and, you know, we're going to change the world and we're going to liberate hemp and this is going to take, you know, the natural products industry by storm. And I knew that eventually all of that would settle down into where's your pre-market safety data? You know, how, what's your evidence that you're able to manufacture this stuff consistently under good manufacturing practices? Are you doing post-market surveillance? Do you have the evidence your product's safe as consumed? And I was listening to the banter in the background of all these companies, um, you know, putting CBD in everything from lipstick to eyeshadow to gel caps, just knowing that that was a phase. And now I'm very excited for phase two of this as we see, you know, the responsible companies invest in science uh, and, and really push this into the second phase of a mature industry. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about the idea that I've been telling everyone that hemp CBD is like the last quarter century of dietary supplements post Dechet, only in dog years, you know, like seven, <laughs> seven to one years. So everything happens in CBD at a hyper accelerated rate, you know, from steamrolling regulators to consumer acceptance to product format innovations to bad apples ruining the dinner party. <laughs> And now, like this year, mergers and acquisitions and companies failing, supply chain management. 
You think? You you want to dig in on any of those areas? I mean, it... well, I mean, you're absolutely right when when you say that that one of the things that I've been able to bring to some of the policy meetings uh, that's been missing is that realization. And Michael McGuffin's he's going to be one of the speakers in the webinar as well. I, uh, the uh, webinar next week. He's really good at this at the meetings too, saying, look, we've addressed all of these issues over the last 20 years. Uh, what Welcome to the party. You know, you have all these attorneys and policymakers and even um, lawmakers, you know, people don't know what they're buying. You, you know, you can't trust those companies. The, the labels are, we tested the product. It's not what it says it is. Okay. Hard stop. These issues have occurred. This is all solved when people are compliant with GMPs and FDA does inspections. We have a lot of third-party watchdogs out there testing products. You know, we know how to solve these problems, and 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 people are acting as if we've never seen these things before. You know, this concept that we are struggling to define what a full spectrum is versus a broad spectrum versus an isolate. I mean, this is all straight botanical uh, medicine type uh, definitions. You know, we, we you know they're not science definitions until you define them and agree on them but we know what they're talking about. So it's just a really interesting area to participate. And I feel, you know, excited to be at the table with people like Michael McGuffin and Steve Mister and, um, you know, uh, all the experts to sort of try to rationalize and shape this conversation. You know, Steve Tabe from the agency has been, you know, really contributes to the conversations and, and you know, um, it's, I'm hopeful that if we all continue to, 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 to know that this is about balancing consumer access with consumer safety, you know, we will get to the finish line in a good way and the consumers will benefit. Yeah, I like the idea of consumer access. I don't often hear that in pronouncements from the FDA. Do you think, do you think the FDA has a particular problem, not not only with hemp, but really with the with the larger botanicals business, because, you know, their primary mission is to support the American pharmaceutical industry, which is really by definition, single chemical constituent, you know, synthetic isolated ingredients. And when you deal with botanicals that have dozens or hundreds of of phytochemicals in it, it's so difficult to characterize them. They don't know what to do with it. And every time I hear the FDA talk about hemp CBD, they they don't seem to be able to make the difference between the CBD isolate that they approved as a drug, Epidiolex, and hemp oil extract with all of the broad spectrum. Is, 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 that, is that a challenge, you know? You know, it's funny you say that. Um, you know, they had recently reopened the docket, um, and in that, they they had uh, announced some of the the questions that they were looking for further comment on. And one of them was the scientific question about the difference between isolate and full spectrum. And I sort of chuckled when I read that. I said, "Oh, come on! I mean, any scientist, you know, would be able to read." you know, two botanical papers and figure out what that, yes, these are totally different 
and they have different biological effects. It's like it's like saying that you know a fine Pinot is no different than 151 Everclear, or that a great cup of coffee is no different than pure powdered caffeine. I mean, it's different on chemical analysis. It's different on uh, the other types of constituents are there that we know have some effect on the overall effect of consumption. It's different in the safety profile. I mean, these, this is basic, goes all the way back to Hippocrates, right? I mean, this is basic stuff. Um, but even though I chuckled, I realized that it was an important question because as you, you and I both know that the definition of the article you know, this concept of the IND preclusion, the whole reason that hemp extracts aren't being treated like every other single dietary supplement is because someone studied pure isolate CBD for a drug endpoint. And so it, it boils to down to how do we define this article? And so if, if FDA needs some help in differentiating a full spectrum extract from an isolate, I had my lab um, write up a nice short explanation and how this should influence policy. We just had that published. Uh, we published it in the Journal of Dietary Supplements. <clears throat> in fact, there is a special issue on hemp drive CBD and the issues surrounding it. Uh, it's got some original research. It's got some new animal studies. Um, and it's got this article that takes a deep dive both analytically and in a, in a discussion format about the differences between a full spectrum and an isolate. It tries to quantify some things and we um, have provided that to the FDA as well to help them deliberate on the topic. But um, yeah, That's it's awesome. strange. Yeah, it's strange. You know, we run into this, Todd, like you said earlier, it's, it's Groundhog's Day, right? You know, someone has a really innovative herbal extract that they do a super cool thing to and they stabilize it and they do some clinical trials on it and they get it out there and they're getting some traction. And then somebody else does like a generic extract of that herb. And everyone always asks the question, well, they're both, you know, ginseng, are they different? And I think our industry recognizes that, yeah, you know, how you make it, your starting material, the type of extract you do, the amount of, of finished chemical constituents in there really influences how it affects the person. And, and if you do cool extraction and you do your own science, that that really is unique to your product. Yeah, I mean, the, the supplements industry kind of suffers with that borrowed science or pirated science That's, thing and and there's no pharma exclusion you know you know what do you have to wait 10 years before the generics come out not so with supplements so so there there is that lack of a uh, financial incentive well it's, there's that too and it's just the scientific question is are they the same you know if someone has done something really unique in extraction and they've standardized and stabilized whatever they've done is it is it safe to say that somebody who's reverse engineered that has got the same thing? And I think that's at the heart of some of these CBD questions about safety. You know, there's only a handful of us that have done our own safety work on our own ingredients. And the entire rest of the presumably 2,800 companies are riding our coattails. You know, and is that the way the intent of Deshay? I don't know. Um all I know is we did it because we want to uh, be confident that what we're providing to the consumers is safe. But, I mean, there's a lot of companies that will say, well, we can't afford to do that kind of science. And you already did it. And our product's the same. And, and I just kind of scratch my head. And I wonder if that's the intent of these um, 
the way these regulations are set up. Yeah, yeah, that that is the the challenge of supplements and and with, with hemp too. The just the the low barriers of entry. You know, before we leave the the subject, I about the article. You know, the the quote article of Epidiolex that you know the isolate that was approved for a drug. It's something like ninety eight or ninety nine percent pure isolate. So, to me, I I have a ninety percent isolate inside of a hemp matrix, you know, like a broad spectrum, that, that would be different. Or maybe it's just a 5%, you know, or you know, whatever, anything other than that 98 or 99% is different from what the FDA approved. Now that would be, that would be some legal opinion. Uh, what, what do you think about that idea? Or, or is the FDA just going to say, well, you know, are they going to pick some arbitrary number where it can't be any more, you know, the product can't have any more than X percent, 30 percent of a, of a CBD isolate in this um, oil? Well, I mean, it's, it's anyone's guess which direction the agency goes. But your first part of your question, um, you know, if they have a 98% and you have a 90%, <clears throat> yours is different. Yes, absolutely. But the point is that if you want to put that into a dietary supplement, you have several more obligations as you approach your finished product. So if you start with a presumably different ingredient, but it's very concentrated, you have to make sure your final form factor is gonna deliver a safe product to the consumer. So for example, Todd, if you said, I got this cool 90% isolate, it's different than Epidiolex, so I'm not violating that, and I'm just gonna put it in a bag and sell pure powdered CBD, and this has been done with caffeine, I think everyone would agree that that's probably not so safe because a teaspoon or a tablespoon of that could get you up to levels of CBD that we know can cause risks to liver injury or drug nutrient interactions, et cetera. So again, it's really the finished product and the serving size that you have to really make sure that the companies are paying attention to. So, um, you know, you were you were hired when when you were hired. Uh, Joe Dowling, the the CEO of CB Sciences, he said, you know, he he wanted to bring you on board. The the the, the official release said to improve the knowledge base and credibility of the overall industry through advanced understanding of research, product, and technology development, while ensuring regulatory compliance. Um, I, I want to stick with this regulatory compliance aspect. What does regulatory compliance look like? to a hemp CBD company? Well, it's making sure that you're you're hitting the foundations of dietary supplement regulations. You know, we are, hemp is a botanical and hemp extracts with CBD are botanical extracts. So the most fit for purpose regulatory paradigm is the dietary supplement. And the benefits of that is we have sort of a pre-market safety setup so you have to do your grass or your NDI, and so that allows you to pull together the evidence so you can say, okay, this is reasonably expected to be safe under these conditions. Then you have manufacturing conditions that, that ensure that the product is, you know, hygienic. But not only that, and this is where I diverge a little bit away from the food category, is that the, the manufacturing standards for a supplement or a botanical extract, they account for the identity, purity, 
strength and composition. So that allows you to provide a product with CBD that you've measured the levels of CBD and labeled the levels. When you're doing food, for example, it doesn't force you to do that. You know, you put tomato in a tomato soup, that's it. You don't measure the lycopene levels, you just put the tomato in there. So now you have manufacturing standards that are fit for purpose. You also have labeling standards that allow you to communicate to the consumer clearly like things like not for use for pregnancy. That's another diversion from things like food and conventional drink where you can communicate to the consumer a serving size if they're sensitive subpopulations that shouldn't take it, et cetera. And then finally, and probably one of the most important things for hemp and CBD is we have post-market surveillance requirements. And that means that you follow up on complaints and adverse events and you send serious adverse events to the FDA within uh, you know, 15 business days or whatever it is. That is so critical in this because people have not been consuming CBD as a non-prescription product for for about you know more than five or six years now. And so if there are undetermined little sensitive subpopulations or drug-nutrient interactions we don't know about yet, that post-market surveillance system is set up to pick up that signal so we can follow up on it. So again, you have the full Monty from pre-market safety all the way to post-market surveillance that allows this product to move into the consumer realm safely. Um, and that's that's what regulatory compliance looks like. Yeah, there's lots of different aspects to it. You know, um, NDIs, the larger supplements industry has largely ignored them. And what do you think about some of the supplement trade groups like CRN saying that when the FDA develops regulations for hemp, NDIs must be part of that equation? Like it seems like there's they're they're using hemp, kind of pushing that to the front of the line and saying, okay, well, you know, you guys didn't follow it. We didn't really enforce NDIs for the supplements industry in the 25 years since Deshay came on, but hemp, oh yeah. You got to get you got to get on board with that, you know. Yeah, you know, it's my understanding, Todd. It's very nuanced, but that none of the trades have affirmatively said yes. NDIs have to be required. If you read it carefully, I think what they're saying is you have to follow the NDI provision of the law. And remember, within that NDI provision, you still have the grass back door. love it or hate it, I'm, I'm just stating the facts until the regulations change. So to my knowledge and speaking with also Rand Almondri, and maybe we can get into this on the webinar next week, she's also another speaker. I've been working with her on some of that language. And, and of course, this is preliminary language. It could get changed. People are wrestling with the idea, but the notion is that the NDI provision applies And there is some diversion and some argument about like, oh, does that mean it's required like you had just articulated like that some people and there are some individuals. I don't think any organizations have come to this conclusion, but that think, why not? Why don't we finally just say if you want to come to market with an ingredient, you have to file an NDIN. It's why we developed the NDIN policy um, and we should use it now. I bet you if you counted all those people, none of them are actually in the business and none of them have filed an NDIN. They're all just sort of policy wonks sitting on the sidelines saying this will make us look better. 
NDINs are a heavy lift. They're not perfect. There's a lot of risk in FDA narrowing um, what they accept as NDIs. You know, that becomes a de facto pre-market um, requirement, if you will. And it would be the sort of first ingredient that has sort of a pre-market requirement. Um, and so that would be a game changer. I'm not saying that we're against it, but it would be a real game changer. And I think your point that there's been no enforcement for 25 years, and now you put this onerous rule and say everybody has to follow it, and then you sort of don't enforce it. If that keeps going on, then it's just going to be cray-cray time, right? You're going to have this real high bar, and a couple companies will go through it, and they'll spend buku bucks, and then you'll have the rest of this uh, industry ignoring it, and, and, and everyone will be hoping FDA does something. And frankly, with the Internet as a major sales uh, uh, platform, that's kind of a, you know, because the retailers will only do business with the companies who go through the right uh, FDA hurdles. But a lot of the CBD is moving on the Internet and on the web. And so there'll be a whole bunch of players that just bypass this requirement. And, and in my opinion, the consumers lose. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it occurs to me the FDA, you know, NDIs are a, a way of demonstrating safety, right? And and so that's that's what FDA is is mostly concerned about safety, as you mentioned, access. Maybe they're concerned about access, but they're definitely concerned about safety. You know, you, and you've got European regulators who have declared that hemp CBD is safe. I'm wondering if here here's sort of an outside the box notion that I've come up with along with my dog ears uh, analogy. And why doesn't the FDA do that NDI work for hemp? And then they can say, okay, we've done the, the research and we've decided, you know, maybe, maybe it's 60 milligrams is the most that you can have in a serving because above that point, you start to trigger the liver enzymes and, and then all of a sudden there's a safety issue. So the FDA should produce that NDI and say, okay, yep, we've done the work. And so long as you have a full spectrum hemp extract, um, no more than 60 milligrams per serving, you're good to go. And then it just becomes a marketing game. Yeah, and then that's one possibility. And, and even easier than that, they wait till Australia or the UK does that work. And they evaluate that work and they just analyze it and make sure it meets their scientific standard and then, then they agree with it. And that is one very uh, much, you know, one possibility. And like you said, it just becomes a marketing thing. And I think, I think we didn't cover this, we started to, but there is sort of this historical notion and I think there's an era of it. Um, you know, the, the people at CIFSAN and FDA are good people and they're, they're doing hard, hard work. But historically, um, let's say there's this rumor that FDA was was uh, not in favor of supplements. The regulations were written sort of uh, um, on the heels of losing a battle that, that resulted in Deshay and, and this notion that they said, you know what, we're going to let this industry hang itself because they're, they're the Wild West and, and this will never work and we don't like it anyway. So the idea that the FDA never wanted to regulate supplements and they've never really embraced the idea and they're kind of they're, they're, they're making up for lost time now with the staff is understaffed, undersized, and they're really trying to do the best job they can with the resources they have. <clears throat> Unlike stories from Canada 
where Canada embraced the natural products. They, they, they wholeheartedly threw together this regulatory paradigm to try to facilitate clear communications. They allow drug-like claims, like, you know, that not these are not drugs. He'll say these are natural products for, you know, occasional headaches or whatever, or occasional inflammation or rash. You know, they don't they don't draw a hard line between a treatment and and uh, maintaining health. <clears throat> and, and in fact, they went as far as they hired a whole bunch of naturopathic doctors and acupuncturists as regulators to help them put this regulation together. So that what I'm getting at is when you with the foundation, your regulation is set up because you want to facilitate commerce and access it's themed a certain way and and this idea that possibly the way fda set up the way all of these rules are aligned it's not really fit for purpose and and, and you and i both know structure function claims are sort of nonsensical you know you, you know everyone's like you need science you need science and you're like what science that you stay normal that's the most silly science i've ever heard i i've supplemented this placebo can randomize controlled trial and i've proven that this product does nothing. It keeps you normal. That's really hard to prove. And it's really kind of silly. And, and a lot of our natural products do fix headaches and do work for inflammation and do help you sleep. So already that, the, the, you know, it's not a fit for purpose model. And possibly we have regulators that aren't so excited about regulating. Therefore, they come up with some nonsensical stuff. Like they're running around saying CBD is not safe while Australia is saying, oh, well, you know, up to 70 milligrams could be safe, non-prescription, as long as it meets these criteria is labeled this way. That's pragmatic. And that's what will facilitate safe use of CBD. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, revolutionary statement there, Duffy. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> truly, I mean, I, I, I want to really underline what you just said there. I mean, I... I is the FDA a fit for purpose agency for dietary supplements? I mean, it, it really goes to show that it really kind of was established to promote the single synthetic chemical constituent pharmaceutical model. And then when you get to dietary supplements, they don't know what to do with it. And, you know, their sort of knee jerk reaction is no. You know, well, another thing is, um, and, and I'm not trying to beat up, they're good people doing good work. They're also responsible for food. And, um, you know, again, when you see the amount of resources go towards drugs and you realize that they're actually, and you, you often forget this, FDA is supposed to promote good nutrition. And that's not something that we see a lot of um, resources being put towards at the agency. Um, you know, the... You know, the, the way they have essential nutrients that are required in the label, they have a public health mandate to also promote good nutrition. Um, and so it's it's funny when you see um, some of what we would think, you know, being supplement industry people is, is, is kind of making it difficult to promote good nutrition and communicate the benefits of these products. And, and um, you know, even simple stuff like the issues we have with probiotics and labeling of CFUs versus metric measurements, you know, and we go to the agency and we say, CFUs are really the right measurement to use. And they look at their regs and they say, well, we can't change it. So you, you can do both. Is there, you know, <laughs> uh, and so it's like, but if they really said, no way, we want to promote good nutrition, the scientifically valid way to do this is to allow the industry or actually ask the industry to label in CFUs. 
But, and it's no, it's no individual's fault, it's no uh, uh, agent part of the agency, it's just how it works. It's a slow-moving beast, and as you said, it's a lot of priorities are towards the drug part of its um, responsibility. You know, after all, dr- drugs is its middle name, but food is its first name. So, <laughs> <laughs> how about a little more nutrition? Oh, good. Um, you know, it seems to me that at least in the responsible category of hemp CBD, that testing and transparency is better in the hemp CBD world than in supplements generally. Like what supplements companies post their certificates of analysis on their websites or have QR codes on labels? What do you think about that? That's that's an interesting point. I recognize that. And we, we put so much time and energy into maintaining those um, QR codes and getting all the right paperwork everywhere. And um, you're absolutely right. It's it's a unique requirement for hemp. And it's not done for other botanicals. Um, innovative companies like Gaia have done initiatives like this um, and gotten lots of credit for it, but no, not across the industry board. Right, right. Weird. So what what else looks different in the hemp CBD world compared to the larger dietary supplements business? Well, Todd, I think one of the, 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 the things that we're going to really need to work out, and I'm not as involved in this directly, is this notion that the farmer is dealing with a, a, a plant that um, with little extra sunlight and a little extra nutrition can go from a, you know an agricultural commodity analogous to a soybean to a controlled substance analogous to cocaine or heroin, you know. And so you have farmer Mary or farmer Bob out in Wisconsin sitting on their tractor and one day everything's good and the next day they might have the DEA out there to to, to destroy their crop. Um, so this, this idea within all that's embedded into it, you know, having to harvest and send a, a sample that's collected by a, you know, a certified person to send to a DEA approved lab within X number of days, like that is such a high burden for farmers. And uh, we're gonna really have to get that worked out. Um, the notion that 0.3% THC is an arbitrary number and very difficult to maintain. And a lot of people trying to push that number up towards 1%. So these are all unique things that never happen with other crops. Yeah, that is the big one, all right. You know, farmers want to be farmers. They don't want to be felons. You know, it's wait. I, I didn't put in for that. I got my I got my my denim overalls. I don't want stripes on it. Come on. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, you know, crystal ball time. Knowing what you know about the FDA, what do you think regulations might look like? Pharma only, food allowed, upper safe limits established, no isolate. What do you think? Um. If I had to get my crystal ball today, I think I think that the agency is gonna is gonna essentially say no to food. We don't have enough safety data in sensitive subpopulations and the way food's regulated, it's not really fit for purpose for labeling, et cetera. It's going to say yes to supplements with some set of, of guidelines around it. And I don't think they'll be as prescriptive as, you know, anything below this number is okay. I think it'll be something like we're aware of evidence 
up to this number, but we expect every individual company to have their own information on their own unique preparation. And so what that would allow for is if your number was a little bit higher or much higher, but you had the data, you'd be okay. So, so it's going to be science driven because that's how FDA works. But if you wanted to sell a commodity product, they're going to probably provide some kind of language that allows for a safe harbor up to some number very similar to what Australia has done. Um, I do think that we might see some sort of THC limits in finished products that is different than the 0.3%. Um, we've seen that in other parts of the world where they stipulate if you're going to make a gummy bear or a gel cap or a liquid, we expect it to be in the this number, you know? Yeah, you know, actually, that occurs to me. If you end up having, a, like, say, a crop, if you're a farmer that goes hot and you're above the 0.3 or even up to, you know, 1%, there's still an opportunity to market that product just not in health food stores or on the internet but at your local marijuana dispensary so there is kind of an out well i think i think that you to grow for dispensaries you have to do a whole lot you know, to be positioned to sell into that market mm -hmm. so your field your crop i mean it's different in different states but i think like if you're going to grow hemp for a dispensary, you have to know that before the seeds put in the ground and get all the approvals necessary to channel that up into a dispensary. I don't think it's as easy to say, I've got this legal hemp, it went hot. Now I'm going to shift it into this other channel. I could be wrong. Um, I think what's more intriguing and what's more possible is maybe I can process as a SERP or blend it with that hemp from field four over there that came in not so hot, right? Yeah. So that's probably where farmers are going to be wanting to not lose their crop and see if there's remediation um, options. You know, let me dilute it with some hops. Let me, um, you know, mix it with a weaker field. There's a lot of discussions. Let me let me um, incinerate it a little bit and burn off some of the CBD or THC. I don't know. Uh, it, it, no one's gonna want. Let me let me sell it into a different industry like um, the hemp wood industry. Right. Yeah. Very interesting, fascinating times. Uh, you know, um, Duffy Mackay uh, uh, with CV Sciences. Thank you for joining us today, and everybody, tune in again on Thursday, July 2nd, where Duffy is going to be leading this discussion uh, with a lot of the uh, hemp CBD industry's leading legal minds. Again, this is going to be from 2 to 3 o'clock Eastern, 11 to 12 Pacific on Thursday, July 2nd. And to register, go to naturalproductsinsider.com. And uh, on the top of that homepage, click Media Assets, then Webinars. Scroll down till you see the title and register and learn something you didn't know before. So, um, Duffy, thanks again for joining us today for your valuable insights. And we'll see you again in a couple days. Excellent. Have a great weekend, Todd. Great. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to a Healthy Insider Podcast, now available on Apple Podcasts or through Google Play. Subscribe now to never miss an episode.